Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing. Projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today, we're back with Punk7176 with four addies. He's a cool-looking punk with shadow beard, shaved head, earring, and a highly sought-after 3D glasses. In real life, he's a former investments trader turned crypto artist, creating one of the most notable collections that just captures the vibe and essence of our weird and wonderful NFT and Web3 culture, Wreck Guy. Please welcome OSF to the show. OSF, how are you, man? Good, thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. Now, of course. I've been wanting to have this uh, conversation for some time, and I think a few of the other punks have uh, sort of dropped your name as well, wanted to get you on. I think Tony Herrera was, was the one that sort of uh, connected us as well. So um, maybe we could start off something simple. How did you come up with the handle OSF? <laughs> That's a good question. I do get asked that quite often, and I wish I had a creative response for it or something that was interesting, but actually, um, they're just my initials. So <laughs> it's nothing more exciting than that, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, no, that's cool. And then, um, all right. Well, well, welcome to Punkcast. Lovely to have you on. Um, it would be great if you could share, I guess, a bit of context around your background and everything sort of pre sort of crypto. It'd be good to sort of understand your backstory. Yeah, sure. So I, my background is actually in traditional finance. I worked as a trader at an investment bank and um, it was my first job out of uh, graduation and I did that for about 10 years. Um, and kind of in my in my final year of working there, I, I got stuck into uh, into crypto and then NFTs, and, and that's how I got into the space. But um, yeah, uh, traditionally, I'm I'm from the uh, traditional finance world. Nice. Um, and you, obviously, you studied finance out of the UK. I'm detecting from your accent <laughs> from the UK. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Oh yeah, born, born and raised in the UK. Uh, right now, I'm based in London. But I uh, yeah, I studied. Technically, I studied maths and economics at university, so it wasn't necessarily finance, but it's obviously a very like uh, it's a profession that's very geared towards landing a finance role. So, yeah, pretty much um, straight from being sixteen or seventeen years old, I kind of had my eye on on the goal uh, to work as a trader in in in, in finance, and, and that's why I went ahead and did. Did you have um, any sort of creative bones growing up uh, alongside, I guess, your quantitative sort of skill set in the early days? Yeah, so you know, from the ages of like thirteen to eighteen, I used to create a lot of digital art online. Back then, the only platform you could do it on really was Deviant Art, and there was no crypto or anything, so there's no real way to monetize it. But art has been a big thing in my family. I used to draw and paint a lot as a kid, and I was definitely a computer nerd growing up. Like I taught myself how to code and just spent all my time on like downloading stuff off LimeWire and you know going into like IRC channels, like real like internet degen stuff from from the early 2000s was what I spent all my free time doing. So I kind of like got into making digital art because I had an interest in art anyway. And I spent many years just doing that for fun, really. It was just a pastime for me. I always tell everyone, whenever I get asked that question, I always tell everyone like, I wish I was 15 years younger because it would have been perfect for <laughs> the crypto and the NFT world. But I was just unfortunately about a decade too too early for it all. But um, yeah, so it was, it was a big part of my life. And then I guess when I turned 18, and I went to university and discovered alcohol and going out and partying. I just thought it wasn't <laughs> something that was like, <laughs> it wasn't something that was like traditionally cool. So I kind of just stopped those hobbies really. And I didn't do anything creative for, you know, a good 15 years, I guess, um, uh, after that. Nice. Um, you, you mentioned IRC. Is that the um, server group chat or not where you would just chat to people anonymously? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yep. I think I think I might have dabbled on that uh, in the early days too. Um, is that where the uh, the question of ASL pops up, age, sex, location, and you yeah. would just, uh, <laughs> chat to random strangers? <laughs> yes, you would. You'd get that question sometimes. Like, oh shit, I better I better leave this channel. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and they were, they were, they were good times. And I think, um, I think it was IRC and then I think we migrated across to, um, that, so it was Merck and then there was, uh, is it ICQ, uh, for a little bit and then yeah, Skype. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, so I think we've got, uh, sort of similar backgrounds in the sense that we were used to speaking to anonymous internet strangers, uh, from, from a very, very early stage. Um, and and so what, what kind of um, art were you sort of um, making at that t- time? Did you have any sort of themes? It was just mostly digital at the time or was it sort of random things that sort of came to you? Yeah, it was really just random things that came to me. Um, you know, I remember something that I remember still very, very clearly is um, I wanted to like draw things digitally by hand, but back then you had to get a very expensive graphics tablet to be able to do that. And it was like north of a thousand pounds. You know, it wasn't anything that I could afford. So I used to just like draw things with my mouse uh, in Photoshop and it was just so frustrating because I just couldn't like get the same precision as I could by holding a pencil or, or, or a pastel or a paintbrush or whatever. Um, but I liked, you know, and to, it's a similar theme to the stuff that I do now where I just liked creating unrealistic worlds, like surreal type worlds and stuff um, that may be from like a different universe or a different dimension and kind of just putting that, like mixing real world elements with, stuff that um is imaginary i think was just like a theme that i quite liked and i guess like was a an extension of my imagination so i tried to, to do that in the art but the way that it looked visually is like i think very different to the stuff that i have now and i actually have unfortunately i deleted my deviant art profile because i was too embarrassed about it but i actually have all my old files stored locally uh on my old pc back home at my parents house so i want, I want to dig those up at some point but i think visually they look very different to the stuff that i have now but the concepts and the themes and the ideologies may be uh, quite similar, I would say. Gotcha. And then, um, so you studied mathematics at, at university, like of all the things you could have chosen, like why maths? Uh... Yeah. I mean, look, it was my favorite subject at school. It was the one that I was best at. Um, and it was the one that I felt I could excel in the most, I guess. Um, and I was, I, you know, I was quite adamant. I wanted a career in finance and my, perception of it at the time so i need to be very numerical and be mathematical and you know do a degree in it so i can get a good job you know i think having spent a decade in that industry i actually don't think you need to be like i think you need to be numerate but i don't think you need a degree in maths or engineering or whatever to be able to do it i think it's more to do with actually your soft skills rather than your your book skills if you like but um you know i was just under this perception that i needed to do something highly quantitative um to get that job but at the same time, I liked maths a lot. Like it was always my favorite subject pretty much from, from day one since I can remember. It was way, I, was, I enjoyed it way more than languages or science or anything like that. And I just always felt very natural with numbers. Like the concepts and ideas just came to me pretty easily. And I just felt like I understood it and could kind of like vibe with it, if you like, more than anything else, I would say. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, man, because... Um... Because I think you straddle both sides of the, you know, the the left brain and the and the right brain, which is both, you know, one is, you know, very structured, quantitative. The other one's a bit more creative as well. And I think you normally go through these situations in life where you're going to have to pick one or the other. Um, was that ever a, a, an issue for you, or uh, did you ever find that being an issue for you at all, or did you just naturally just felt gifted in both, <laughs> naturally gifted in both sort of spaces? I mean. It was never really an issue for me because I never felt I was like extremely gifted artistically or creatively. And I did, um, you know, I did a lot of music as well. Um, I played the saxophone and guitar and stuff. And I, did, I studied music at school as well. And my music teacher always used to tell me there was like, you know, she was like, there's actually a lot of correlation between people who are good at music and people who are mathematicians because your thought process, even though music is something that's, theoretically very creative your thought process in terms of like reading music and understanding time signature and understanding beats and notes and all that kind of stuff is actually very similar to maths and I think that's even the same with art you know like I think I only really realize this now but when I create things and especially in, in this digital world there is a mathematical or a systematic element to how they're created and sure the initial idea maybe is something that's completely qualitative and completely out of your imagination but when you actually come down to drawing things and constructing things and understanding like 
the perspectives and how you're drawing it. It's all you're thinking. I feel like I'm thinking in, in the same way. So um, it wasn't a conflict growing up because I never really anticipated pursuing a career in something creative. And so it wasn't really a choice for me. It was just like, I'm just going to do math and I'm going to go into finance. That was always, always going to be the plan. Later on in life, obviously I felt, felt these conflicts, but now I think I'm at a point where it's like, you know, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. And I actually think this whole world of like NFTs and, and digital art and generative art is another thing as well. Really nicely unifies these, all these things that I'm interested in, um, which I think is amazing. And it's never, never existed before. So it's just like, you know, I'm just like, wow, like this actually, this thing, really weird, niche, unique thing actually exists, um, which I think is just amazing. I feel, I do feel very grateful to have found something that I feel like is, is my calling. Well, I think when you're talking like that too, I think you're right. I think um, it's not many things that combine everything all together, but I think with crypto and NFTs in particular, just feels like it just pulls all sorts of disciplines in, right? Like economics, finance, art, culture, science, marketing, um, all these disciplines, history yeah, as well, um, all on the same sort of umbrella, which is really cool. Oh, man. And, and then, what, so what were you doing in terms of your banking career? Were you more on the trading side or were you more on the advisory side? Yep, purely just trading. I, had, um, I was a trader in, in high-yield and distressed credit and credit derivatives, so like bonds and, and credit default swaps. And um, I spent... Um, about six years in London doing that. Then I moved to NYC and spent three years um, working there and then moved back to London for one year um, before finally uh, uh, hanging up the boots. Nice. All right. So um, so from from your background in finance and where the markets are at the moment, uh, are, are we back, OSF? Uh, <laughs> you know, every time there's been there's been moments this year where it's felt like we're back and I've said we're back and obviously we weren't back then. So I'm super cautious of saying we are, but I think this could be it. I really, I really do think we are like, you know, I used to, BlackRock was a big client for us. I used to trade with BlackRock quite a lot when I was at Barclays and every time BlackRock came in to buy something or sell something, you would be like, shit, let me get out the way because they're not just buying one or two. They have like hundreds of millions of whatever it is of size to put on this trade. So I don't think this is any different. You know, I think, if they're entering this market and they're stepping in, they're not just going to come in and buy a little bit of Bitcoin and then watch it go back below 25K. I think, you know, they're going to come in here and, and really make a statement, I think. And if they're doing it, all the other, other asset managers will follow. So I think, you know, when the ETF headline comes out that it's approved, it may be a sell the news event at that moment in time. But going forward in, in the medium and long run, I think it's a massive, massive win for the crypto industry. Is it a massive win for Bitcoin and decentralization and, and those ideologies? Possibly not. That's a, that's a just separate argument. But in terms of price action and return, I think it's, uh, it's going to have a big impact. Well, let's hope so. And, and what do you think that means for NFTs? Like, do you think any of that will translate across into NFTs at some stage? I really do. You know, like I think, I think it will take time. And I think the kind of flow of things, if you like, is first it's Bitcoin, then it'll be ETH, then it'll be altcoins. Um, and once people have made a lot of money and all this stuff, it will just get back to the human nature of like, oh, what can I, what can I go out there and buy to flex how much money I've made? Like, you know, maybe I really crushed it on this altcoin. I'm going to go out there and buy a zombie punk just to be like, yeah, look at me. Like I crushed it. Now I'm, now I have a zombie punk. You know what I mean? Um, and I think we'll get that again. It's just, it's no different to any other collectibles market. I think we will get that again, but I think we need higher crypto prices first. I think they need to be sustained and, I think you probably need like a big altcoin cycle as well. And you just need people to be rich. And, you know, like if I make a lot of money on coins, like I'm probably going to buy some NFTs that I really want or I really like because it's it's like a luxury spend. And that's when I think, that's what I think will really truly kickstart the NFT market um, again in, in the same way that we saw in 2021. Uh, let's, let's hope so. Um, so. So talk to us a little bit about your your journey to crypto. Like when, when was your first foray into into crypto? So the first time I heard about Bitcoin was 2012 um, when I was in Thailand and someone was telling me about how you could, um, someone was telling me about Silk Road and how you could buy any drug you wanted from there and like order assassinations <laughs> and stuff. And he was explaining, yeah. And he was telling me about this thing called, <laughs> called Bitcoin and like that, you know, this is how you would be transacting it. And 
I just thought I was talking to like some crazy person. I was like, okay, cool, whatever. And then I didn't really hear about Bitcoin for a few years until 2017. Um, and this is right before they're talking about Bitcoin futures, et cetera. And I think that's when I, that's the first time in 2017 where I really started to have like a lot of my friends, some of my friends saying, you know, you should get into crypto, get into Bitcoin, get into ETH. And I, I didn't really understand it. I never didn't really get it. Um, but I thought, you know what, I'll just maybe I'll just try and buy some ETH. So I tried to buy some ETH, but I couldn't get KYC on my Coinbase wallet and it just didn't work. So I just left it, didn't do anything. And obviously in 2018, everything crashed. And I was like, um, you know what, maybe that was a blessing in disguise that I didn't get involved. Because if I do get involved, I tend to like put in, like try, I just go in quite big. I just find it very hard to like get dabble in small amounts. So it's like, oh, good thing I didn't get involved. And obviously I missed out on the the the, the big moves. And the next time I actually ended up buying Bitcoin was in Jan 21, actually. That's the first time I bought any crypto. And this was after like lots of people telling me about Bitcoin during COVID. And I just, I was like, and especially when you work in traditional finance, you're, you're, you're trained to think in a way where it's like, I analyze things on like a fundamental basis and a technical basis and it's model driven. And these are the factors that drive this value. And you just couldn't really do it with Bitcoin. I just didn't really like, I was thinking about it in a way that I shouldn't have been thinking about. Um, but um, I actually used to trade GameStop, um, not the equity, but the bonds. It wasn't as exciting, but I just started looking at Reddit and all these guys, you know, buying GameStop and making all this money on it. And my initial thoughts are, oh, man, these guys are so stupid. Um, and I traded Hertz as well. And, you know, the same thing on Hertz equity, people were buying the bank of equity. And I was like, oh, these guys are so stupid. Like, they have no idea. Then I was like, well, actually, you start hearing these stories about, you know, random 18-year-old kid makes millions of dollars. And it's like, at the end of the day, I, I might think he's stupid, but he's made a ton of money. So, um, and and I'm I'm sat here working like 7 a.m. till 6 p.m. or 7 a.m. 7 p.m. every single day, and this guy's just chilling. So, um, who who's really the stupid one, <laughs> me me or him? Um, so I kind of like got over those barriers in my head, and I was like, let me just think about crypto again. And I did have this big view on inflation going out of control and interest rates not really moving, and I kind of got my head around the idea this was digital gold. So that was the first time I was like, okay, I understand the case for Bitcoin here. And I understand it's much easier to tr transact with and then maybe some other stuff that I'd want to, to transact and to put that trade on. So yeah, I just bought Bitcoin Jan 21. And, and that was it really. Like as soon as I had bought that first bit of Bitcoin, just fell down the rabbit hole on, on everything really. And you just can't, you know, you just read another thing and another thing and another thing and you find yourself in crypto Twitter, then you get into NFTs. And um, after that, I was like, wow, I just, you know, I just can't believe I ignored this whole world for so long just because I was too um stubborn or stuck in my ways or thought I was smarter than it to to give it a chance. And that's one of the most bullish cases for this whole space, crypto and NFTs, you know, like I think there are lots of people out there like me who just think they're above it or think we're all dumb and they're smart. And um eventually they get it and eventually someone else gets it. And eventually one of their friends gets it and they look into it. And um I think there's a lot more wood to chop there in terms of uh, adoption. Um and um I think a lot of what you said there sort of resonates with me as well. Um, I was probably reluctant, um, just like you, and maybe ignorant and maybe stubborn. Uh, it was it was probably the, the way through, but um, but you're probably right. I think it's uh, the guys that make the non-consensus bets are the ones that get paid out. So hopefully we're we're on the right side of that that bet. Um, so so January twenty one that was was that before COVID hit as well? Just. Uh, just trying to just Jan 21 was right after COVID. It was right after right COVID, after yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's when I got in as well. And then what was your what was your um, first NFT? Like, do you remember what that was? Yeah, the first NFT I bought was a, it's an artist called Dan, Dan Guse, um and it was a one-of-one -one piece on Super Rare that I bought. Um, at the time, I think I understood, NFT-wise, I was like, I don't really get the use cases, but I understand this idea of digital ownership and it being a medium for art. So at the beginning, I was very, very focused on just buying, you know, individual one-of-one -one art pieces on uh, on Super Rare, basically. Mm. Did, did you collect um, traditional art in real life prior to, you know, digital art? I'd never collected traditional art before, digital art. Um, and I'd been to galleries and stuff and just had an appreciation for things, but I didn't know a lot about it. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was really my first step into into collecting art for sure. Mm. Um, what what was it about um, NFTs and digital art that that got you to sort of make that sort of jump step? 
was it a big sort of leap for you or is it just experimental? Like, well, how were you sort of thinking through that? I think it was experimental. I, I think at the, t- at the time I definitely had my sort of trading mentality on where I was like, you know, I could see that um, this idea that of digital ownership was a big thing, but um, you know, you could be the first to own some of these pieces that could be historic and you could buy something one day and sell it the next day for three times your money or four times your money or five times your money. And it was just, you know, with my day job being trading um, and something that I really enjoyed, it was just quite thrilling to trade a market like that. And there were so many similarities to the NFT market and trading it to what I was already trading in terms of the liquidity and it being an over-the-counter market and being very volatile in terms of price action and stuff. It was just the way that it traded was so similar. Um, and I just found it so fascinating that I just, yeah, I just wanted to be involved. To be honest, at the beginning, I just really wanted to be involved from that perspective, just to trade things and buy and sell things. And, you know, it was only after being in the, the space for probably, you know, not just a few weeks, a few months when some more things clicked for me and I just kind of like fell in love with it really, I think. Like I, I was just like, wow, like this is more than just flipping JPEGs. It was like, there's a whole community behind it and people who have hopes and dreams and are working very hard to pursue them. And, you know, you just, you get opened up to the whole ecosystem for more than what got you in it, I think. Um, and that's when I really felt like, I, you know, like I kind of feel at home here. Mm. Just, um, just out of curiosity, timestamping the Dan Grease piece, when, when was that? That was April 2021. Got it. Uh, yeah. Then, sorry, sorry uh, it was March, March 21, March 21. March 21. Okay. So that's, that's still pretty early. Okay. And then, cause I know you're, you're um, kind of famous for minting board apes and, um, uh, and the like as well. How many did you mint back then? So that, was that around the same time? Or that would have been around March, April that time as well, right? Yeah, it was, uh, I believe it was in April. Um, uh, I ended up minting 150 of them. So it was quite, quite, quite aggressive wow. at the time. <laughs> So, so what made you go in that hard with Bored Apes of all things? Like, did you get a signal or did you do your homework on, on, on them? You know, I, it was a very impromptu decision. Like I had, I just quit my job at the time and I'd been out for drinks with all my to be former colleagues, et cetera. So I came home like pretty drunk. It was like 3am and I remember just like scrolling through my phone, looking at Twitter <laughs> and, you know, I just saw all these people like minting these board ape things. Like, oh, what, what is this? And, you know, at this point I'd solely been focused on art. I hadn't bought any PFP stuff and there wasn't really like a whole PFP market then. I just didn't really, you know, apart from punks, I just didn't really like understand or get anything. So, um, I went onto the website and it was a really professionally like well done website. And it was the first, I think it was like at this point, it, we have to remember this was like so early into like NFTs. There wasn't much talk of like, membership clubs and communities and all that kind of stuff or like digital ip and you know brand this idea of like web3 brand or anything there wasn't none of this existed and so when we went onto the website and the first statement of board ape yacht club i was like well i get this idea of membership clubs this is kind of cool like i can see why someone may want to be a part of this and they said oh you get the right the ip rights for your ape if you buy it and i was like i don't know how much this will be worth but you know it's kind of cool something interesting and just the website was done so professionally and it it all looked good. It all looked like it was like super purpose built and everything else before this was just like cheap, you know, not cheap things, but like things done very poorly without much thought. And you just knew they wouldn't really take off. So I just kind of got that feeling. Sometimes you just get that feeling about something and you know, it's going to be good. And that's the feeling that I got here. And, you know, I think I started by minting a few and I just, then I just saw, you could just see them start minting out very, very quickly. And you can see they were already trading in the secondary market, like above the mint price. So in my head, I was like, well, even if I don't want to own all of these, like I can just mint them all and probably flip them for like two or three times my money and make money on it. So I just basically spent all the ETH in my wallet at the time, just <laughs> just max minted what I could basically. Don't know if I would have done the same thing sober, but. <laughs> <laughs> DGen mode, proper DGen mode. And um, how does Mando into the story because I think you and Mando were uh, um, flipping apes together at some stage, right? Yeah. So um, Mando actually was the first person that got me into NFTs. He he has started buying art uh, after I bought Bitcoin. He said, "You know, we should look at NFTs." So when I when I was minting the apes, I was messaging Mando and said, "You should mint these." Like I just got that feeling it's going to go higher, and he didn't really want to get involved. He just I think um, you know it just felt too nascent for him back then, and. Um, 
over the next few days, he was like, oh, wow, that's a good trade. You should sell these. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I should just sell them. So over the course of about a week, I just sold all my apes. And at what price? Like what, 150 apes in a couple of weeks? It would have still been pretty early. It was a range. Like I think the floor ones I sold between like 0.2 all the way to maybe like 0.5 or 0.6. And then I had some really nice rare ones. You know, I had like a full gold ape. I had the mm. 13th rarest one with laser eyes and stuff like that. Like I just sold it all way too cheap, <laughs> um, painfully cheap. But, um, you know, after three weeks, Mando said, hey, I really like apes. We should buy apes. And by, at this point, they were already they were like, they were like a three floor. And I was just like, man, like, you just told me to sell all of them. we like done another 10x in price and now you're saying buy them back. I just couldn't, I just didn't want anything to do with it. I was like, I just can't look at them. I like, just, it's just like, ah, uh. you know, that feeling you sold something, a lot yeah. of things way too cheap and you just left generational wealth on the, t- on the table. It's just like, <laughs> I just don't want to be involved. <laughs> um, but what happened is he, you know, he ended up doing well in that trade. I, I ended up focusing a lot of one-on-one stuff and I bought an X copy one of one and, um, you know, pegs by Matt Fury and a few other things that did really well. And in September of that year, we realized we both had quite complimentary, uh, collections. Um, he had a ton, had a ton of apes and had a lot of the other stuff. And so we decided to combine our collections together. And so I got part ownership of his apes. He got part ownership of everything else that I had. And we put it all into one big wallet basically. And then from then on, we managed that whole thing to, together. Um, so that's how I re-entered the ape trade after my massive fumble because Mando did actually go and buy 70 of them at three ETH or whatever they were at the time. Insane. Insane. So you guys, you guys have exited completely, right? Cause I think there was, um, that, uh, that blur bid, uh, dump that, uh, that sort of happened earlier this year as well. Is that, you, you guys have completely exited out of apes now or? Yeah, I think so. I think it was, you know, it ended up being a good trade for us and we got lots of different airdrops and stuff and. We had 72, so it's always a hard, you know, when you own that much of something in, in what might feel like a large complex, but doesn't have a ton of liquidity, the question is always like, how do you exit that trade? How do you get, you know, get out of it? And we had all this like unrealized gains on paper, but we, it was just like, we just knew as soon as we started selling, everyone would start selling and we didn't want, like really want that to happen. And then Blur came along and you had all this liquidity on it. And I remember, um, I think the price of the eights were around 70 ETH and we looked on Blur and I was like, wow, we could just sell this whole thing in one go. We've never had that much liquidity before. And we decided not to do it. We were just like, you know what? We're not really bearish in apes or NFTs. We still like the trade. They were still down from, you know, down 30, 40% from, from the highs. So we decided not to do it. But we then saw just the price go up and up and up and up and up all the way to like 78 or 79. And you could see it was just like the same guys bidding and flipping to each other and just all, these, all this Blur farming. So... We were like, look, this is basically fake liquidity. And um, I, we didn't have a strong view that NFTs were going lower, but you just it was a really good trade for us. And we just had this opportunity to sell the whole thing in one clean sweep to people who weren't really real buyers, perhaps. Um, and so we're just like, you know, we have to we just have to take it. It was just a smart thing to do to take profits. And so this was February this year. We just decided to, to sell them all. So, so you, there was, um, were there like 70 bids at around 70 ETH? on at that time that's insane but it was um, well it was really just it was two or three guys bidding that amount for multiple apes really was it was it mackie yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay yeah that was that was funny uh that time frame oh man um that's that's uh, an amazing trade um given where they sort of are now i hope they find their way way back at some stage um and then, and then during all that as well, you, you launched, um, I guess your, your project, uh, Rec Guy. Um, when, when was that launched? It was a free, it was a free mint, right? I, th- I absolutely missed it and sort of got FOMO on that. But yeah, it was a free mint. Um, we launched it, uh, at the end of April, 2022 last year. Um, I don't know. I just, was just, I guess this character was just like a recurring character in the art that I was drawing and, put, and putting out and, um, I wanted to personify it in as a profile picture project because I just thought it kind of made sense. And it was really just meant to be a fun project for me to work on on the side. I just spent really my evenings and weekends doing it. It took about four or five months to to do the whole thing. And I made it a free mint because it wasn't, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I thought this was, a, hey, this is like an, a genius idea that's going to change the world. I was like, this is just like a fun side project. I'm not really trying to extort value out the system here. I just want to make it a free mint. 
um, social media agreement for existing collectors. And we had another project called DGENs, which was a bit of a flop, really. So, it, you know, it was a free mint for DGENs. It's kind of like a thank you to sticking with us on that one. And, um, and yeah, that was it. And then we just, the reception, you know, we, we obviously we launched at a time when the market started to tank. And um, I think it was one of the first mints of the free mint met. I think we were just a few days after Gotham Town. And yeah, it just seemed to, for whatever reason, seemed to just capture some kind of attention of, of, of NFT collectors. And I think, to be honest with you, in the first few days of it, we realized we had something that had a lot of potential. It's not something that we thought was going to have a lot of potential before doing it. Um, but I don't know. I remember, I remember generating the first images and I was like, wow, these actually look really cool, like way better than I thought they would. And again, it's just one of the, another one of those things just had that special feeling about it, sort of had that feeling deep down that, you know, maybe this can be something. And, and that's really how it came about. It was never really a planned thing. It was, um, you know, something we were working on ad hoc on the side, not really very well structured. Um, and then, yeah. It just it became became what it did. No, that's super cool, man. And I think it it just I mean, Rec Guy just captures. I mean, a lot of the DJs had a lot of fun with it, right? I think it just captured the moment really, really well. You know, everyone's bags are down bad, and everyone's you know literally DJing uh, across the whole whole sort of piece as well. So um, it's a really fun collection. Um, across your pieces, though, I mean, because you do a few. Um, art collections, one-on-ones are super rare and things like that as well. Like, you know, what, how would you describe, I guess, your, your style of art? I know, I know glitch is an element of it as well. Um, but how would you describe, I guess, the inspiration behind your art and, 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 uh, and, and I guess the context of it? Yeah. I don't, is it, is it, I always find that one tough to answer really. Like I think, um, I think I'm a huge fan of X copy and he's been a massive influence for me for sure. So some of the glitch elements or the ideologies definitely stem from, from his influences um but you know as i've drawn things over the last couple of years i think you naturally develop you can get into your own style and the things you want to put out um but i would say like i really like you know i'm a big fan of meme culture and a big fan of capturing moments in time and like the zeitgeist and that kind of stuff and um i like portraying elements of that in my art i think it's you know we've been through a lot in crypto in the last two years and we'll look back on it in years to come thinking wow like remember when that happened or remember when FTX went went uh, uh, went bust, or when Three AC went bust, or when BlackRock ETF got accepted, whatever. Like these are all massive, massive moments, and I think um, capturing them through art is a really cool way to capture them. I think, and you know, art lives forever, and art, art that's on chain will live forever. And it's just for me, I'm a very just a very very nostalgic person. Um, I always have been, so it's kind of cool to be like, oh, I remember when I drew that, when this thing happened. Like that reminds me of that, and I think that's the biggest. Um, thought i have when i create things and like the genre is tough to really say like there are elements of glitch in the way that the pieces maybe are animated and the way they come out but i don't think it's glitch art in its true form um i i think it's better described as just animated art and maybe there are elements of surrealism but it's not really quite surrealism it's just like unrealism is what i I think is what I, i like to say and you know i like drawing cities that we know are uh, real cities but like putting them into like my own kind of world if that makes sense um it's kind of like if you ever watch stranger things you have like the normal world and you have the upside down and like trying to draw, i'm trying to draw like my upside down version of the real world i think so yeah it's really hard to like put that into a genre yeah but that's that's kind of like how i see it no that's cool um and uh no i, I, I love it man I, I need to try and get uh get some of these in, in in my vault for sure um i love the colors it use as well uh the red uh always looks really cool i gotta get that hong kong piece i think the, the one that you did yeah i appreciate that as, as an artist though um you've decided to buy a crypto punk why, why why did you decide to buy a crypto punk of all things yeah i've had a i've had a, a long uh back and forth history with, with crypto punks i think the first time I heard about them, I just didn't get them. I didn't really like them. And I think um, this was, you know, March 2021. And I just felt like they were being shilled very aggressively on the timeline. It's like, buy this CryptoPunk and be a part of this, like, it gives you, like, um, uh, digital, like, certification that, like, you're a real person, you know what you're talking about, all this kind of stuff. And I just didn't, like, it felt very elitist to me. Like, I'm, I'm very, like, anti-elitist. So I just didn't really, I didn't really love it. 
Um, I didn't really, I didn't really love the concept of it. And I know that's not what punks were truly about. I know that's not what Matt and John wanted them to be, but I think certain people and the way they're opposing them on the timeline were, were driving this message. And that, that seemed to be the loudest message at the time. And I was just like, oh, I just, I was like super anti-punk, just hated, didn't want to do it. And then, um, you know, with bearing in mind, I was looking at everything from an art perspective when it was announced that there would be a punk auction at Sotheby's. And, you know, now that doesn't sound like anything crazy, but back then it was like, whoa, like traditional auction houses, like actually having NFTs and not only that, it's crypto punks. That was a moment for me. I was like, okay, this is not just something that a bunch of people on the internet are pushing. This is going to be a real thing. This is really going to have like massive appreciation in, in the greater world. So that's when I FOMO'd into my first punk, um, which was punk uh, 6623. Um, had a nice, nice purple hat and big shades. And I was like, you know, it kind of looks like me as well. And it was good. I, I honestly like all the things that I bought, I, I loved buying the experience of buying. That was incredible. And like the first time you change your profile picture to that punk and it did genuinely feel just very special. And, you know, as a result, I spent a lot of time in the punks discord back then. And that was, it was, it was, it brought me so much value. Like that's where I learned about Fidendas and art blocks and all the upcoming mints and stuff. And you just kind of got to speak to a lot of very smart people um, and a lot of very weird people, but like, it was the good kind of weird. It was the weird that was the same weird as me. And I think that's when I really understood after, it was only after I bought it and started interacting with other people. That's when I, I really got it. Um, and, and yes, yeah, so that was my first punk. That was April, April 21. Um, I bought my second punk, which was, I can't remember the, the serial, but it was one of the red hair, nerd glasses and an earring. It looked like Ed Sheeran basically. Um, <laughs> and I bought that right after the visa announcement. Cause I was like, oh, this is, this is, oh God, oh God I got me a visa, bought punk. This is going to be huge. So I think I bought that at 69 ETH and, um, that was like very good timing. And that was another pure like FOMO purchase as well, but they ended up being good buys. And, um, I ended up selling my, I had my first punk. I think I listed it at 150 ETH as kind of like a, whatever, just like, it's never going to get there, but I just like listing things at high prices. And, um, I think that when the floor got to like 147 and 148, um, my punk looked very good versus the floor. Like it was a nice punk. And then it was actually on my ledger. So I couldn't delist it at the time. And I ended up selling it at 150, but in hindsight, that was a good trade. Um, and then like, you know, Lava Labs were kind of being a bit funny on the timeline and you had the whole V1 issue as well. And, um, and this, you know, Yuga Labs were doing all these things that people were like, oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. And at the time I didn't really understand what punks were about, I think. And I think I, w I wanted punks to be what apes were, but I didn't understand that they were two different things and they would perform behavior differently in different scenarios and environments. So I kind of just, you know, lost, I guess, patience with punks and I ended up selling my second punk. And I didn't, I didn't touch punks for a while after that. Um, and it was only really like at some point last year, I was like, ah, oh, now I understand my punks make sense because you don't need... The, the value is not predicated on like a team going out there and executing a roadmap or the drop of an ERC20 token or um, a metaverse or a blockchain game. It's, it's none of that. It's just like punks, the value from punks derived from the fact that they're punks. Um, but it just took me so long to really understand that and get that and really appreciate it. And um, eventually I did. And I, you know, I bought back a punk earlier this year, right after me, the ape sale. That's one of the things I really want to do is like when, when I sell these apes, I'm just going to make sure I buy one punk and I'm going to buy one that I really like that I feel, you know, is like, is me or is cool. And so I bought the, the one you mentioned at the beginning of the show with, with the 3d glasses. And, um, I'd seen that punk for a while. It was there listed for like months actually. And I was like, I just, I just know that's the one that I want and tried to put it down, waited and waited, waited, didn't really work. So I ended up buying it and probably still bought it too high, even though I was patient, but, um, uh I'm I'm happy with it. I really like it. Would you say this is your one of your forever punks? Um so you got this on March 13, 20 this year. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think so, yeah. I think it is. I think um I think it's just compared to the other I I bought the other punks that I had before because it was sort of like this is the best I can get for the ETH that I have. Whereas I bought this one, it was like, you know, I just really, really like this one and it wasn't you know, it's definitely mid range. It wasn't like a floor punk. It wasn't near the floor. Um, so yeah, it's the first one where I've bought where I feel like, yeah, this is actually one that I, that I picked out and, and want to have and was fortunate enough to be able to buy. 
were you looking at any other traits at the time? Were you, you know, eyeballing, you know, 3D glasses or any specific traits? I was very fixated on 3D glasses. Um, I think um, this is a whole thing about hoodie punks. You know, everyone loves hoodie punks. It's not the rarest trait, but they look cool and they feel cool and it's part of culture and I get that. And my initial thought was like, yeah, let me try and buy a hoodie. But they, they were so expensive. And I just like, I was like, I personally just don't love the way many of them look. And the ones that look good were like super expensive. So it's really hard to get like a nice, clean hoodie punk that was kind of felt affordable. And also like with the hoodies, like they look nice, but like, you know, as you've probably seen from my art and stuff, like I like colors. I like things to stand out and kind of like strike out at you. And I think in my opinion, 3D glasses are one of the most striking traits out there because of the contrast of the two colors, the red and the blue. You don't really get that in many punks. And I suppose you can have like purple hair or purple hat or red hair. Um, you know, there's green hair, but I don't know. There's just something about like those glasses and the red and the blue being next to each other that I think is really pop. kind of unmatched really to, to yeah, they make them really pop. It's unmatched to many other traits. So. Mm. No, it's a, he's a, he's a beautiful punk mate. So, uh, yeah, I think, Thank you. uh, yeah, it's got the, uh, nice beard. It sort of looks like if you, if you shave your head, I think, uh, be a nice fit. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I had shorter hair, shorter hair and an earring. <laughs> um, and if, you know, money, money wasn't an issue for you when it comes to buying punks, like, would you have any punks or traits that come to mind that you'd love to have in the collection? I think zombies are really cool. I would I'd never buy an alien punk, you know, like I just don't think they look that cool. Controversial. <laughs> uh, um, but I, I think zombie punks are really cool. One of my favorite punks is the one that uh, someone called OX Tycoon owns, which is like it's a zombie punk with a lux beard and and a beanie. Three, um, it's got the 3D. Does he have the 3D? Maybe it has 3D glass. Yeah, possibly yeah. does. I can't remember. Um, yeah. That I think is just so cool. Like that's not unreal. Um, the other one, I mean, the seven trait punk's amazing. I'm, I'm actually, I'm good friends with C, with Danny. Um, and he always wears a little like Tiffany's seven trait pendant. And it's like, that's a very envious thing to have. But, um, there's another punk that's like the set, the brother of the seven trait, which I think looks pretty cool. It's it has big shades, top hat, Lux beard. Um, I think it changed hands for around $500,000 or something like that maybe a year ago or so but that one i think is really cool as well that's like i think like the better looking version of the seven trait punk um which i always like to wind danny up with uh yeah that was cool too yeah he's uh danny's got a, a, an amazing punk i think that's uh definitely one of the most iconic ones in the collection for sure um yeah i really like the zombies too but i'm probably with you i think the aliens are probably overrated i think they uh aesthetically they just don't really look as good as maybe an ape or a zombie for me as well but um but yeah um, and if you were to look across the punk community, do you have any, um, favorite punks that come to mind for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely quite a few. I'm a big fan of, uh, of OX Fubar. I think he, um, he provides a lot. He has a punk with a tiara. Um, he provides like a ton of value. I think he's a super smart guy. And, um, but I think what I find interesting is he's not just one of these like, devs with no personality or sense of humor like he shit posts a lot on the timeline and i just i think his takes are always the right takes is they're always pretty good so he's definitely a punk um that i like a lot <laughs> i like um i like punk 9059 or it used to be nft with the beret and mm -hmm. pink hair i think he's sam provided a ton of yeah sam exactly a ton of value to the space mm -hmm. um and he's also a great guy he's a pretty pretty, pretty funny guy as well he's a I think he's definitely one of the um, one of the iconic punks out there. Um, I like I like Tony as well. I, I actually met, I got to chat with Tony for the first time in Marfa, and he he was the one that put us in touch. But his punk as well is pretty iconic. I think, or like kind of like the clown punk with the green with the green hair. I think <laughs> yeah. it's, I think it's a pretty awesome one as well. Um, every yeah. time you see that on the timeline, it's like, oh, I better better read this. So um, <laughs> those three for me are definitely some of like the. Um, the iconic ones. I think I, I think I've got to say like Beanie as well is there. Like you can't not associate the Beanie <laughs> trait with Beanie himself. And whether you like him or dislike him, and I actually appreciate a lot of his takes. And I think he's I think he's smart. Um I think he has the right take more often than not. Um, which is another controversial opinion. But he yeah, that is like you can't say that's not iconic. It really, it really truly is, I think. 
Yeah, I, I'm with you. I might get a lot of shit for it too, but um, Be- Beanie in the in the bull market was fun. He was like Twitter entertainment, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> like him, Art Chick, like uh, all those guys were were a lot of fun. But um, but it keeps funny my bags in this market. I got to get them to stop. But um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, those are some good punks you should have mentioned. Um, and how would you describe punk culture for you? Like, yeah, punk, punk culture. I think, um, I would say it's an appreciation of, um, of like unlocking your brain and like stepping out into a world that is unfamiliar and that maybe feels wrong or feels like it doesn't make sense, but it's kind of like the embodiment of that. And with NFTs, you know, you speak to any normal person, it's like, I just don't get it. Like right click, save, or take a picture of it, or blah, blah, blah. Why is this this price, this price, that price? Like punks are like, you know, I'm I'm transcended beyond that thought process into this new world of like forward thinking. And I'm now taking all these things um, at face value and thinking about things like in a new form without this like, ignorant bias and without this you know um pride self-pride or you know self-knowledge that i have and just like recessing just being very open-minded so i think you know punk culture is about being open-minded i think which is funny like many people may not say that about punks but i I think it truly is and i think it's an appreciation for like it's an appreciation for things that just fit well together seamlessly in a nice way it's like you see the NFTs that punks want to buy. And there's a reason why punks, many punks don't like apes or don't like other NFTs, but there's a reason why they're big fans of art blocks or autoglyphs and other things, because there is within punks, there is this idea of like almost like mathematical appreciation for the things and the way they are. And I think that's, for me, that's what punk culture is. And it's like, it is like that weird part of the internet where people have just found each other and, and have got together. But I think, you know, I think that's what it is. I think that for me, um, that is a a real thing. And it, it begs the question, like I've made lots of throne street punks and I'm sure you have, I'm sure many others have. It begs the question, like if you did, if you didn't have punks, would you have met these people? And would you have found these communities? And would you have found people who share your same niche interests? Maybe through something else, maybe not. I don't know, but I'm grateful for punks for existing to connect like-minded people in that way, I think. Yeah. I think I think you're uh, you described it quite nicely as well. I think I'm sort of getting elements of um, you said that open-mindedness coupled with um, uh, you know correlations to mathematics, and I think there's a purity that goes along with it, right? I think they like art blocks, they like on-chain things, and probably more uh, a little bit more extreme than, than most. But um, but yeah, I think uh, it's sort of a nice way to sort of summarize it. Um, you, you you spoke briefly about V1 punks. Um, how do you feel about V1 punks? It's a good question. I think um, I think they have their place in the history of punks. I don't think they're worth zero. I don't think you can completely discredit them or ignore them because at the end of the day, they do exist. And there is something cool or charming about like, this is the first project that we messed up. So, you know, it's like the failed thing. It's kind of like, you know, when you find like an old demo tape of a of an album that was like unreleased, you know what I mean? It kind of has that kind of vibe about it. So from that perspective, I think um, they're cool. And I think they are a collectible and I think they're worth owning. Um, with regard to their value, should they uh, should they flip punks or, you know, be worth more than the, um, the, the actual crypto punks just because they predated them? I think the answer to that is no. Like I, th- I think I believe in this idea of like things having certain age or vintage and, and that, according to their value but i think just because something is old or the first doesn't mean it should be the most valuable thing like it has to be the thing that maybe has some history but also ha- the thing that had the biggest cultural impact and at the end of the day the thing that had the biggest cultural impact was the the v2 punks as we know them today not the v1 punks um so i think that will never change um and um but it doesn't mean v1 punks are you know pointless or worthless or not a cool thing to collect. I, I actually, I, you know, I would like to own one because I think it's an it's an important part of history. Um, but I don't buy the thesis that oh, this predated punk, so they should be worth more than punks. Nicely said. And how, how do you feel about the Yuga acquisition of CryptoPunks IP? How did you feel about that at the time? At the time, I was like, wow, this is like a 
crazy Chad move by Yuga Labs and they're flexing on Lava Labs and, you know, this is crazy. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we sit here today and Lava Labs probably had the better side of that trade, I think. Um, but it, do, it, it does <laughs> change. Like now, I mean, now as like someone who appreciates punks of what they are, I think it does change them a bit. It's kind of like, well, this was this cool kind of thing that Lava Labs created as the artist and, um, you know, now they've kind of like cashed out and sold it to Yuga Labs, who is like the arch nemesis of all things like pure and nice and, you know, decentralized. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really change anything, I think. Like Yuga Labs don't seem like they're doing anything with the IP. I'm not sure they will ever do anything with the IP. And really part of their deal was buying, the big part of their deal was actually just buying the, um, you know, the treasury holdings of Lava Labs. Now Yuga Labs own like 400 punks or whatever it is. Um so I don't think it changes anything long run. I actually think it's a cool bit of history as well. Like it makes the story interesting. Um, um, but yeah, I would say right now I've, my feeling on it is neutral. I would say. Nice. Um, OSF, this is super fun. Uh, loved having you on podcast and I could probably chat for days and pick your uh, finance brain on, on the markets at the moment. But, um, but one, one final question before we go, um, if you could pass on a message to the next owner of your punk seven, one, six, seven, what would you like to say to him? I would say wear it. I think, um, you know, I'm in a position where Red Guy is my PFP and always been my PFP. And I, sometimes I feel a bit bummed where I had this beautiful, beautiful looking punk that never really gets taken out for a spin. So um, for the next owner of it, if there is a next owner of it, um, I would say, please, please, please wear it, sport it, um, have it as your PFP in many places possible because it is really... Uh, a nice punk and it's a shame that it doesn't get to see the, the light of day a bit more amazing um LSF, thank you so much for joining punkcast uh, i guess any final closing comments on your side and you know what's the best way for uh, people to find you yeah um twitter is the best way to find me osf underscore rect um i'm always tweeting every day uh even when i probably shouldn't be um but yeah thanks a lot for having me it's been it's been great to, to do this uh to the show uh and thanks uh, thanks again guys that wraps up uh, an episode of punk cast for the week and we'll be back next week with another punk bye for now <laughs>